Let's pray and we'll, we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, it's so good to be here. We thank you for this place. Thank you for a warm uh, room to gather in. We thank you for your kindness and your providence. As we look at the book of Esther this morning, Father, we see your work all over it. And just pray that you'd bless our time in your word. In the name of Christ, amen. amen. Um, has anyone ever watched any of the Esther movies that have come out? One, I don't know, there's probably, I think, One Night with the King. Or, yeah? Okay. Um, we watched one before we did this, this study in youth group. And uh, that's like most movies that try to cover a biblical story. I thought it was fairly terrible. Um, but they usually paint it as this wonderful love story, and it's just absolutely not that. <laughs> but that's okay. Um, the most famous fact about the book of Esther? Anybody want to guess that? We never hear God mentioned in it. God is never mentioned. It doesn't even make a cameo. No. God is never mentioned. in the New Testament either. Yeah, that's a good point. I didn't know that. I didn't think about that. It's just like he came out of uh, Ben Franklin's Bible, you know? <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, well, anyway, Esther is set in the, uh, in the exile of Israel. Um, so Israel is exiled by Nebuchadnezzar in 586 B.C. And then you have the Persians, Cyrus the Great, conquering Babylon in 539 B.C., 47 years later. So Israel is kind of transferred from, from one kingdom to another. And, and that's where we start to um, see the story of Esther come in. Um, also in 539 B.C., right, Cyrus, the Persian conquers, takes over Babylon, and then he decrees that the Israelites can go back and rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. Um, so that's where you see the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. The majority of Jews did not return. Um, you see small numbers returning with Ezra and Nehemiah, but it's, it's certainly not the vast number of Jews that were there before the, the exile. Um, and so Esther is looking at the story of the Jews in Susa, the Persian capital, who stayed behind. Um, King Xerxes, or depending on what your Bible has, uh, does, does anybody have Xerxes in their, in their yeah. Bible? Mm-hmm. Okay, that's probably NIV, right? Uh, yes. Okay, anybody else have something different? Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus, mm-hmm. yep. Um, so Xerxes is his Greek name. Um, the, the Greek historian Herodotus wrote a lot about the Persian kings, and he used the name Xerxes because he was Greek. Um, so his uh, more appropriate name to his culture is Ahasuerus, but Xerxes is easier to say, so I'll probably use that for most of the time. Um, he starts ruling in 486 B.C. So we are 100 years after the initial exile of the Jews out of the lands. Uh, he was 32 when he starts ruling, um, and Esther was part of, was under his rule. And interestingly, she would have then been born and grown up in Susa, in the Persian capital. Uh, so she would never have been born in the land of Israel or known the land of Israel as her home. Um, so that just adds a lot of interesting context, I think, to, to this story. Um, this story starts at about 483 B.C., so we're about three years into, into um, Xerxes' reign. And the main theological point that we're going to find this morning is that God fulfills his covenant promises through his providence. Right? Through his providence. Um, yes, God does miracles. God does amazing things in bringing the Israelites out of Egypt and, and does many miracles in the New Testament. But, in general, God works through providence. And providence is his invisible an inscrutable way of governing all creatures, actions, and circumstances through the normal and ordinary course of human life without the intervention of the miraculous. This is what most of us experience, I would say, all of our lives. 
Um, God is just working providentially through everyday events to bring about his purposes. Um, and that's one of the interesting things about Esther. Since God is never mentioned, we need to find his providence in the book of Esther. Um, and it's, it's, it's easy. It's almost humorous at times. Um, Esther is full of irony and, and humor. It's a very uh, fun book in that way, the way that the Persian Empire is mocked and the way that God is, is exalted throughout the book, even though he's never mentioned. Um, so we'll cover that and go through the whole book this morning. So let's, uh, let's start in chapter 1. We'll read verses 1 through 4 just to kind of get the setting as we look at the Persian Empire. Now in the days of Xerxes, the Xerxes who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, in those days when King Xerxes sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and the governors of the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. All right, so a big empire, a vast empire, a wealthy empire. Um, at this time, he's actually gathering support for a campaign that he's going to launch against Greece. He's looking to go over there and conquer. Um, and so he's throwing this, this big party Make everybody happy. Get all the all of them excited before we go off and what try to conquer. Was also the king in, in the movie 300? I, I maybe he I think was, so. Uh, yeah. I mean, a little bit, but they do build up that whole sense of bigness. Yes. I, he, he, he's iconic for right. his big stature and all the power he yep. represented. So yep. not accurate historically. But uh, Herodotus does call him, if I remember right, the tallest and most handsome of the Persians. Interesting. Yeah. So he, he is noted as this kind of. A large figure. Uh, it's, it's, you know, in, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you guys can talk about that when you get home. <laughs> All right. Um, as, as, you, as you probably know, if you've read Esther, um, he summons Vashti during this party. And so we'll go down to verse 10. And this is just a setup for Esther, right? Vashti is going to appear in the beginning of this book and then disappear because she is not the point of the story. But we're getting to Esther, and this is how we get there. So, on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abagtha, Zether, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Xerxes, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Um, so we see a few things about Xerxes here. He's, uh, he's given to drunkenness. Um, he's a very sensual man, um, arrogant, self-interested. It's, it's entirely possible uh, given the wording of this, that he had wanted them to bring her in only her royal crown. Um, even if that's not the case, that is certainly the the meaning behind what he is doing here. Right? He is not looking to honor his wife, but rather to treat her as a, a spectacle. And and this would have been a, a you know the, the men parted over here, the woman parted over here. Vashti has her own party for the ladies. So this was a very uh, offensive request to Vashti, and so she refuses um, as this would have been just a, a terrible thing for her to do. Um, so she shows some, some backbone, and then she is promptly exiled from the kingdom because you can't go against the Persian king. Um, and he, he may have had some, some personal reason to get rid of her. Um, he's trying to get everybody excited to follow him into, into war. 
And so if his wife uh, won't even come when he asks for her, you know, what's to say that everybody else is going to be excited about following him? Um, but either way, he's selfish, he's powerful, he's rash, uh, he's sexually and politically motivated and charged. Um, he's not a good king. He is not a king that uh, we should hold up as, as anything honorable. But we are seeing God's providence. Because ultimately, we, this book is about God saving his people from Haman. Right? And how does God start to do that? Well, he starts to do it with a selfish, right, um, sexually driven man. Like that is where God starts to work. Right? God is bringing the right people into the right place at exactly the right time for his purposes to be accomplished. And so Vashti is tossed out because we have a lustful, degenerate king um, who was drunk and wanted to do something. And so now here comes, here comes Esther, and that's what we find in chapter 2. So Vashti refuses in 483 B.C. Um, Esther is not made queen until four years later. Um, in the inter, intervening years, Xerxes has lost the war with Greece. Um, so he's defeated, he's lost a lot of money. That will come up later as, as something that's important. Um, and then Herodotus also, this Greek historian, describes the king's life after his defeat as one of sensual overindulgence. And so just kind of continuing down that, that sinful, <coughs> sinful hole. And so that's what we find in the beginning of chapter 2. Right? The king is lonely. He's probably smarting from his defeat. Um, and the, his counselors, who are always influencing the king, we'll, we'll see this throughout the book, Like he's not a real strong smart, thoughtful king. Like He's generally just influenced by everybody around him. Um, Esther picks up on this and uses it to her own advantage, which is, is pretty good to see. Um, but he's just kind of going with the, the whims of those around him. And so the people around him are trying to satisfy him in chapter 2. And we'll uh, look there and read verses 1 through 7 because we're going to get introduced to the main characters. After these things, when the anger of King Xerxes had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. And the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under the custody of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the woman. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So King Xerxes looking for another queen. Um, and, and really, this is not a competition you'd want to win. Um, he's not looking for a wife to have a committed, loving relationship with for a lot of years. Right? He is a, a sensual, lust-driven king. Um, as we see from the way that he goes through this process, anyone who does not please him becomes a concubine, right? All of these, all these women that are taken into his chambers, right, become his concubines if they don't become queen. 
Right, this is not a, a competition you would uh, be looking to win. Uh, but we're introduced to Mordecai, and we are immediately clued into a few important things about him. Um, Mordecai would have been his his Babylonian name, uh, so this would not have been his Jewish name, um, because it is a form of the Babylonian god Marduk. Right? It's a, a varied form of that name. Um, but we're introduced to him as somebody who is obviously connected and in this kingdom, this pagan kingdom, but also somebody who is significantly a Benjaminite, right? somebody who was connected also to the Jewish people. So we see kind of both sides of him there. And the same thing with Esther. Right? Famously, her name is Esther, but that is not her Hebrew name. Right? Esther is a version of the pagan goddess Ishtar. Right? And we see here that her Jewish name was Hadassah. Right? But she's obviously known to us most famously as Esther. Um, and she is noted as beautiful. But we're at least given the picture, and we'll see this throughout the book, of these two people living one on, one, on the one side a Jewish life, and on the other side a life in a pagan culture and a pagan world. And we'll see that, that tension in these two people as we work through the story. And so we work through chapter 2, and she is beautiful. She is taken to the king. Um, this is not something where you get to choose or say no. Like, if you are picked for some reason, you are taken. You are going. You are going to get your, your cosmetics. This is going to happen. There's not really one a great opportunity to protest. Um, but we do have to ask the question, as we look through this chapter and see Esther going to the king, is she remaining faithful to the Lord as, as a Jew should? I know she doesn't have a lot of choice. What do you think? Is she is she staying faithful to the Lord throughout all this? So Peter chose persecution and going to jail rather than okay. serving the king. Mm-hmm. You'd say. Yeah. It's yeah. difficult difference between being a man and a woman then mm-hmm. in particular. I mean, mm-hmm. Your choices to what do I do in the situation are none, really when you're a woman. You just Oh, it's, it's a lot harder, yeah. 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 Um, well, in uh, verse 10 of chapter 2, it says she did, uh, did not reveal her nationality or family background. Mm-hmm. So she was at least aware of uh, maybe the danger of doing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she some, certainly was, yeah. Some discretion. Yeah, Mordecai knew about the danger too and told her not to. Yeah. Um, I, I personally don't think that was good advice. Um, as we look at the story, a great comparison story is the story of Daniel. Right, very similar situation. Um, certainly a little different because they were they were men in a culture that elevated men more than women. But Daniel and his three friends, multiple opportunities, basically said to the king, "Go ahead and kill us. We're not going to do what you're asking." Um, and Esther could have done the same thing. Right, the faithfulness is always possible if you're willing to die for the Lord. It's probably just that the, the author's point in this mm-hmm. isn't that. You know what I mean? The, like the point of Daniel, the point of Esther. Mm-hmm. I don't think. I think. I think they're two different, you know, main points. Mm-hmm. So even if that's the case, I still think that the, you know, the disobedience at the cost of your life has a place in the story of Daniel. It doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily have a place in here. Yeah, I think it's a. You have to see if you agree as we work through it, but I think it's a sub theme in the story. Um, and and I, 
I thought that as I worked through it with the youth group, um, especially because in general, whenever I read the book of Esther, I always thought, oh, she's she loves the Lord. She's it's a hard situation. She's just doing the best she can. Um, but I've shifted from that, and I think it shows the glory of God even more when we see God using her in spite of her sin. Um, and I say in spite of her sin because of a few different things, especially in chapter two. So let's look at that. Um, verse nine. It says the young woman pleased him and won his favor. Okay, so there, she could have just been pretty and he found that attractive, but it, there seems to be a little more activity on her parts in this pleasing of the, of the eunuch. Um, she's at the very least willing to go along with what is happening. Okay? Um, then we get down to verse 15. And it says, when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter, to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the woman, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Xerxes into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tibeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sights more than all the virgins. So that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. The, if we think this is a lovely love story, then we can give Esther more credit. Um, if we remember who Xerxes is, um, then I, I think Esther is, is in sin at this point. Um, right? She is doing whatever it takes to bring pleasure to this lustful, degenerate pagan, right, to win his favor in this instance. I just can say, came to my mind, pragmatic survival, mm -hmm. even though it doesn't please God. Yeah, yeah, and I get it. I, I, I understand the pressure totally. <laughs> like, she is not in a good situation. Um, but it is interesting that it says that she won grace and favor in his sight, and she was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. She recognized that the, the eunuch was the best person to help her win the favor of the king. So she went to him to figure out what to do, you know, before she, she went in. Um, she was taken by a powerful king, um, but at the very least, she was also willing. Right? And in all of it, God was sovereign. Um, at a very basic level, she should not marry a pagan, according to the, the Jewish law, according to being a faithful follower of the Lord. Um, this is not a simple case of, of her going outside of the law of God and marrying a pagan, right? She's, she's taken. Um, but it's also not portrayed as, as this king in, raping her. Right? We're in some sort of, of middle ground here, right? Um, he would not have been, she would not have won grace and favor, right, if this had been a true situation of rape, right, where she was trying to stop everything that he was going to do that night. Um, So instead of, like Daniel, who stands out and God keeps him faithful, right, she kind of blends and conceals and gets into the situation where she is married to Xerxes and she is the queen. Um, and regardless of her motives, what she understood, um, and that's a great question also. Like, what, what did she know of the Lord having grown up in Susa? Uh, she, was, she was far away from the, the temple, from the people of God. Uh, we don't know what Jewish synagogue looked like in Susa. We don't know how educated the kids were on, on the law and the things of the Lord. Um, we don't know how conflicted her heart was. But 
God is faithful. God is working, and that is the beauty of this story. Um, and at the end of chapter 2, we see God continuing to set up the rest of the story. Right? Mordecai discovers a plot, saves the king. It's written down and forgotten about. And that's just thrown in because God is providentially working, and it's a beautiful thing to see. So. All right, chapter 3. <coughs> Pat, would you read verses 1 and 2? After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to him, for the king had so commanded him concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down and pay homage. All right. So we're starting to set up the conflict. This yeah. is the other main character in the story. And this is a fascinating character. We've got we to gotta do this. Go back to 1 Samuel 15. Because this is just... The naming of these people is so significant. 1 Samuel 15, one of the most uh, <laughs> aggressive texts in the Old Testament <laughs> when it comes to God exacting judgment on his enemies. But... Uh, the Amalekites were the first people to try to destroy Israel when it came out of Egypt. Okay, and so God commands Israel in Deuteronomy 25 to blot them out. And then when we get to the king of Israel, the first king of Israel, it is Saul who was of the tribe of Benjamin, Benjamin also Mordecai's tribe, right? Okay, so we have Saul fighting against the Amalekites and commanded to utterly blot them out. And this is Saul's um, sin, because he does not fulfill this command as he ought to, that causes Samuel to say the kingdom is taken away from you and give it to another. Um, who is the king of the Amalekites at the time Saul fights them? Agag. Agag. Okay. So Haman is an Agagite. Mm-hmm. And that makes a clear connection back to 1 Samuel, to Agag, the king of the Amalekites, enemy of the Jews, People that want to see the Jews destroyed. Um, it is debatable whether or not Haman was actually a son of Agag. In First Samuel 15, it appears as though all the Amalekites are killed. Um, certainly Agag is. It says that Samuel hacked him to pieces before the Lord. Um, so we know Agag is dead. We don't know about all of his children. It seems as though they are all dead. Um, at the very least... And in rabbinic tradition holds that Haman was a son of Agag. Um, but at the very least, Haman is an Agagite in character. Right? Even if he's not a direct descendant, he's an Agagite in character. You mean more like a grandson of the lineage? Um, I was thinking, I mean, Saul, Saul was in the time frame of about 1000 BC, mm-hmm. and 586 is the, the, the destruction. Yep. The Persians take over, so you're talking a 500 year difference. I'm yeah. Trying to understand the reference of him as a son. Yeah, it's like a direct descendant. You know, like okay. Grandson, great great grandson, okay. something okay. like that. Yeah. Okay. He may not be. Um, Haven may not be an actual great great grandson. Okay. Um, but at the very least, he's like Agag. And so there's that connection. Yeah, yeah. And Saul was the son of Kish. Mm-hmm. And Mordecai's ancestry. Mentions Kish in the in the ancestry lineage. Yep. Yep. So in First Samuel fifteen thirty two, after Saul has failed to obey the Lord and destroy the people of Amalek, 
it says there's first, then Samuel said, bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. And Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. And Saul said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Saul, Samuel, packed Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Um, so that's one of my favorite verses in the Old Testament. <laughs> well, that's one of my memory verses, too. There you go, right? <laughs> I mean, the world thinks the bitterness, the bitterness of death has passed from God. Mm. They, they, they live that out as if this doesn't apply. Mm. Mm. Good point, thank you. That's good. I'm like, ugh. Yeah. Oh, you yeah. have the whole world. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Mm. All right, so back to Esther. We have this Haman the Agagite, which is just a clear signal of how evil this man is and what he's going to try to do as well. Right, he is going to act in the character of Agag and try to kill all the people of God. And so he is described as the enemy of the Jews. Um, and Mordecai, there seems to be something about Haman that Mordecai cannot bow to. There's just... Something, it seems, has pushed Mordecai too far. Um, Mordecai has lived in Persia for a long time. He's probably one of the people who works in the palace. He, we see him at the king's gate. That was a lot of business was transacted. Um, in all honesty, he's probably bowed to people before. Uh, he probably would have bowed to the king if he walked by. It's just my guess, but that there's something different with Agag. Or, or, sorry, with Haman. And it pushes Mordecai too far, uh, which is, I think, again, the providence of God in this situation because it sets up what God is going to do. So Haman, in his anger, does not want to just punish Mordecai, but turns to wanting to punish the entire Jewish people, to kill every single one of them in the entire kingdom. And that's where we get really the, the peril, the, the difficulty of the story for the Jews. So Haman goes to Xerxes. Again, Xerxes is very influenced by his people, by his advisors. Haman offers a lot of money. He probably could have benefited from the money, given the war did not go well. And Xerxes doesn't really care enough to find out what's actually going on. Haman never tells him the name of the people in chapter 3 that he wants to destroy. He just says, there's this, this people that are they're not good for the kingdom. Let's go kill all of them. And Xerxes says, okay. And so Haman casts the lot. He's casting the lot... I believe it to be, yeah, he cast it for about a year, and then he finally decides through the lots that he is going to destroy all the Jews in the 12th month, and that is decided in the beginning of the year, so he has to wait 11 months to carry out this decree. Um, and again, the providence of God. But they send out the edict anyway. This is the end of chapter 3. They send out this proclamation that the Jews are all going to be destroyed. And they send it out at the beginning of the year, interestingly, on the eve of the Passover in the Jewish calendar. is when this edict is sent out that all the Jews are going to be destroyed in 11 months. Um, and so this great question is, is raised up in the book of Esther. Is God still the God of Exodus? Mm -hmm. Right? Is he still the God who is going to rescue his people? These people that were carried away into captivity because of their sin. These people that have not remained faithful. Is God going to still keep his promises and save his people? Well, it's, it's additionally interesting because the original Exodus had nothing to do with forgiveness of sin. Mm -hmm. The original Passover had nothing to do with... It wasn't an atoning sacrifice or anything. That was just God's protecting his people. But mm -hmm. that was not a... Same thing here. This is not a... 
this Passover that they're about to celebrate, the fact that it's coming on Passover, this has nothing to do with pardoning transgression. Right, but is he going to, yeah, is he going to still be faithful, especially when they've been so unfaithful? Um, And I think that's, uh, I like seeing Esther as somebody who has not been faithful. I think it's accurate, but, because I I see two questions here, right? Is is God going to save his people? And then is he also going to use Esther, right? She's almost like a microcosm of the nation of Israel. Somebody who's not faithful, is God going to still rescue her and use her? Um, And it's a great question, because that's what God does in all of our lives. Right? We're not pristine Christians who have never sinned once we got saved. Right? God is still using sinners. <laughs> He's still using sinners to accomplish his purposes. So, the providence of God. Be quiet, you The providence of God. Mordecai's delayed reward. He didn't get anything for saving the king. Hmm. Haman gets elevated to second in command. That's the providence of God. Mordecai not bowing. That's the providence of God. The king being weak and very easily influenced. Sounds like today. Mm. Yes, it does. The defeat to Greece was the providence of God. Yeah. The lot. Right? Yeah. Sure. It's amazing. <laughs> so we get to chapter 4. And we find Mordecai fearful for the Jews, clearly. Um, Does Esther know about the proclamation? I don't think she knows yet, does she? No. Then Mordecai comes to her and tells her about that. Mordecai has to come tell her. Right? Right? Right, so think about somebody living in the palace. We're, we're approximately, if I remember right, we're approximately five years after she became queen. Mm-hmm. Right, and it just seems like she is... Very busy putting her makeup on. Content in the Persian kingdom. Yeah. Maybe doesn't love it. You know, maybe wishes this never happened, but... But she's there, and she's not fighting. She's, she doesn't even know that this has happened. Right, she has to ask Mordecai... You know, put on some clothes. You look, you look ridiculous. You can't be my uncle and out in the, the king's gate with sackcloth on. And Mordecai has to tell her what has happened. Mm-hmm. She is that, mm-hmm. she's that um, separated from the people of God. Yeah, if she was going to the synagogue before she was chosen, she probably wasn't going to mm-hmm. the synagogue after she became the king's yeah. wife. Yeah. 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 This, is, this is a classic temptation of the world, right? It draws us in and distracts us. and. You know, it's like the, uh, the parable of the four seeds where you know, the one seed that's among the thorns gets choked. You know, it just gets consumed by the cares of the world. Or it's just survival. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, well, she was in the king's family. Yeah. Right, you know, yeah. going on with the program. Yeah. But faithfulness to God is always possible if we're willing to accept the consequences. Right. <coughs> Plus the king being a jerk, he might have kept that information from her too. Hmm? He's not, not going to get all the sexual pleasure and everything else he needs. Her. <laughs> she she yep. So his Jewish identity is still hidden at this point? Yeah, as far as we know, it's still hidden. I think it comes out in chapter 7. I think that's the first time it's stated. Um, so as far as we know, she's still a Jew. Or she's still hiding her identity. Um, Alright, who wants to read chapter 4, verses 12 to 17? One of the more famous passages. Excellent. 
And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Mm. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, mm. night or day, and I and my young women will fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, so it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mm-hmm. Mordecai then went away and did everything that Esther had ordered. All right. So a very famous passage. You probably all know it fairly well, at least some of the famous phrases in there. Um, a couple of notes, uh, just in terms of where, where we see Mordecai and Esther in terms of trusting God and being faithful to him. Um, it's easy to think that, that Mordecai is referencing the Lord here, and he may be, but he's vague about it at the very least. Right? He just kind of says, help will arise from another place. Right? He doesn't say, God will rescue us. Um, and I mention that also because back in, cha- in verse 3 of chapter 4, it says there was great mourning among the Jews, this is the second half of the verse, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. What is the one thing that is missing from there that is almost always included in other books? With repentance, sackcloth and ashes. Yeah, repentance or even prayer. Right? So any even just reference to God uh, is just missing. Um, there's sorrow. But there's not this, this obvious crying out to the Lord for help. But it's interesting, he says, for such a time as this. Mm-hmm. In the case that there's something going on in his mind, yeah. that the, you know, the architect of all the coincidences is behind all of this. Yeah. And I think that's what we see throughout the book of Esther, right? God putting Esther and Mordecai in a situation where they, they, their faith has to grow. Mm-hmm. Right? They're being drawn out of their complacency. Esther, I think, more so than Mordecai. Um, I think he's more quick to see the Lord and to trust in the Lord. But still, they're being drawn out and it's just a beautiful thing. Like God is not just saving the Jews. Right? He's sanctifying his people. He's sanctifying Esther and Mordecai and drawing them to himself. And that's just a beautiful thing. Because um, he's not going to... He's going to save the Jews overall, but he's also going to individually work in the lives of these people for their good. Uh, and I just love that. And so Esther is confronted with this very difficult choice. Um, we also see the providence of God in... Xerxes not really being interested in Esther in recent days. We didn't read this, but let's see. In verse 11, at the very end, the last thing she says, because Mordecai is telling her he wants her to go to Xerxes, she says, but as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. All right, so, so much for the, the wonderful love story, you know, the Hallmark movie that she was living in. Um, Xerxes has been for some reason absent or just not interested in her or maybe using the rest of his harem whatever it is she is not foremost on his mind their relationship is not so good that she can just walk in and confidently say he's going to accept me right? she, there is a fear of death which once again drives her to make a difficult choice right? to come out of her complacency and trust the Lord and do the right thing even though she could die that's a beautiful thing that God is doing in her because she does choose the scary and the dangerous option. She seems to be somewhat resigned into verse 16. 
I will go to the king, and though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Um, we could certainly see faith in there. Um, we could also see some just kind of hopeless resignation. Um, but at the very least, right, God is calling her to, to act in faith, and she is starting to step out. So we get to chapter 5, and we'll just highlight some of the things in here instead of reading a portion. Um, as Esther sets up what she can imagine as the best way to go about this process, um, she goes to the king, and even though she's facing a very difficult situation, um, she decides that the best thing to do is to kind of butter the king up. Um, Esther has, has learned a few things about the king over the past few years. She knows that he... Uh, he enjoys being satisfied and pampered and people treating him as, as this high and mighty person. Um, and so she goes in, she uh, proposes this feast and this honor that she is going to give to him at the Haman. And, and, uh, and then even says that it's not only one feast, it's two feasts. Right? She's not going to just give him a first feast, but a second feast. And she is drawing the king out because he's excited, he's happy, he's glad for what she is doing. And so he's starting to state again and again and again, just, just tell me what you want and, and I'll do it for you. Right? So she is, in, is drawing out this promise from him to do what, whatever she requests. So she's very smart and very tactful in what she is doing. Kind of making the king feel like he is in control. Um, because her task is very difficult. She basically has to tell the king that his second in command needs to die. And the king's going to lose out on this fortune, and she also has to do it at the right time because this king is self-centered and fickle. Right? He didn't care enough about the Jews to know who they were before he decided to kill all of them. And so him saving the Jews is not going to be about the goodness of saving the people. Right? It's going to be something that he wants to do because he's he woke up on that side of the bed this morning. In one sense, it's kind of scary because the... the the lack of concern for the sanctity of life, mm-hmm. not even knowing the people group that you're going okay. to, to judge and to oh. kill. And all oh. of that can repeat itself in human history. Yeah. And, you know, will that time return again? Yeah. Uh, it never went away. No, it never did. Yeah, I mean, it, it never did. That's right. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. Right. yeah. And then we have Haman also here at the end of the passage, all puffed up and happy and the best there is in his mind. He's a very, very uh, shallow person. Right? He idolizes prestige and honor and respect. So after all of this prestige and honor and going to the banquet as the only one with the king and the queen, and he goes home when he walks by Mordecai. Mordecai's not bowing and he just he's completely shattered. He loses all of his joy and all of his happiness. He no longer can can enjoy anything, and he goes home and complains to his wife. And, and they come up with a great solution. Well, let's just build this massively tall gallows, uh, which may have been a spike, I learned. Not, not necessarily a noose. It might have been just one of these impaling spikes. Yeah, very tall. Um, yeah. Yeah. So... You didn't have real Yeah. I don't know. You know, you're like, you're big staircase. Like, helicopters to drop him from onto the, you know, right? And he's like, how do you, if that stake is going to impale the person, and the stake itself is already very high, we should probably move on. Figuring this out. Yeah. So in God's providence, this story, this entire book turns on chapter 6, verse 1. Mm. Amen. 
Okay. Could you read that, Bill? Spend the night with me. Yeah. <clears throat> this is verse 1. Mm-hmm. On that night, the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the books of memorable deeds, the chronicles. And they were read before the king. Mm-hmm. The, the Jewish people are by God's providence saved because of chapter 6, verse 1. On that night, the king could not sleep. And it is in all of the planning, in all of the power, um, the influencing of the king by Haman and all his advisors, God just shines through in almost a hilarious way. Right? All these people are working and trying and planning and attempting to do all these things and God inserts himself into the story in the verse that says, on that night, the king could not sleep. And the Jewish people are saved. If you know the story, this is it. The Jewish people are saved. Nobody else knows. But the story is turned. Daniel chapter 2, on the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind mm. was troubled and he could not sleep. Yeah. Yeah. It'll give us cause to not complain the next time we can't sleep, right? Yeah. Yeah. I do. You can't sleep, then. Don't just lay there awake. Yeah. Get out of bed and read something. And he does. He finds the most boring thing possible so that he can fall back asleep, it seems. But help for the Jews is arising from another place. And it is God. Um, Because it just so happens that he can't sleep. And it just so happens that he reads the Chronicles in the right section where the story about Mordecai just so happens to come up. And this story just so happens to not have a resolved ending. That all these coincidences hilariously come to a head right here. And the king has to honor Mordecai because in, in that culture, if you did not honor the person who saved you, well, then they might not try to save you next time when your uh, assassination is attempted. And then Haman just so happens to be the one standing in the, in the king's court when the king wants to honor Mordecai. <laughs> <coughs> and we see the hilarity of Haman trying to kill the Jews and God turning it on its head, right? Instead of Haman coming in and getting his request of being able to to kill Mordecai before he goes to the banquet with Esther, right? He is given the task of giving the highest honor he can think of to the man he wants to kill, right? And it's just, it's God just almost laughing in the face of Haman right here. Right, laughing at the plans of evil that people have against his people. This is Haman's dream turned into his worst nightmare. Right? But it's, it's, like, uh, it's like Mr. Beaver says in the Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan is on the move. Right? Behind the scenes, God is doing things. And, and people are just going to be a part of that story of God glorifying himself. And so Haman honors Mordecai and then goes home in complete shame. His wife actually tells him the truth, interestingly, at the end of chapter 6. It's fascinating. And Haman is, for a moment, given an opportunity to repent. And he doesn't. But she says there in the end of verse 13, If Mordecai, before before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but you will surely fall before him. Fascinating little light that has somehow gotten into Haman's wife's mind. Um, and she tells him the truth. <laughs> somehow, some way, she has she has learned the story of the God of Israel, right? And she realizes that Haman's doomed. Interestingly, Esther has no idea that this has happened. 
right? Haman comes to the feast. And so, so God, has, God has already rescued his people, essentially. Right? God's plan is in motion. It is not going to change. But Esther doesn't know. Right? So God is still calling her out and causing her to walk faithfully and trust him and learn of him while God is the one who is actually rescuing his people. Because Esther right now thinks that she has to still accomplish this, this, this task. That I have, to, I have to do the really hard thing and, and put myself out there as a Jew and tell Xerxes that Haman should die. And I don't know how this is going to go. And behind the scenes, God has already made it all work out. Um, it's a great reminder for us. So, so she asked her question in a very cunning way. Right? She's in verse three. We can see that she is trying to butter the king up and see, make him feel like he's in control. Chapter seven, verse three. Then Queen Esther answered, "If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated." If, if we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Um, what does she leave out? Who are her people? And who's trying to kill her? Right? This is almost like Nathan before David, after David commits adultery with Bathsheba and kills Uriah. Right? Nathan doesn't tell David who he's his, his parable story. He doesn't tell David who it's about until David is angry and David is ready to bring righteous judgment. Right? Esther's doing a very similar thing. She's getting Xerxes ready to make the right decision before she tells him who it's against and, and who needs to be punished. Um, very smart. Because she knows the king. <laughs> um, so finally, at the end of that, she reveals that it is Haman, this wicked Haman, a foe and an enemy. And then we have Haman just completely trapped. Right? He, has, he has no idea what to do here. The king leaves to go think in the garden. And the king's in a, in a bit of a quandary. Right? He, he's the one who ultimately approved this massacre. So he's not going to just get away scot-free unless he figures out some sort of scapegoat. It's his edict. Right? It, was signed, it was sealed with his ring. Um, but also, how does he justly find a reason to get rid of Haman? And in God's providence, Haman decides to stay which he, he should not have done by palace rules to stay alone with the queen. But he decides to stay and to beg for his life. And he, the king comes back in and, and we'll just be generous and say that you know Haman was attacking the queen. Uh, <laughs> Xerxes found a convenient reason to kill Haman. Right? This, this falling all over her. Um, I, I doubt very much that Esther's life was actually in danger at this point. Um, but at the very least, Xerxes finds a convenient reason to kill Haman. And very interestingly, the providence of God, once again, verse 9. Joyce, could you read verse 9? Harbona guy. He's one of the king's eunuchs. Right? He's, and he's telling the king to kill his second in command in a very convenient way. Yeah. If you go back to chapter 1, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahuman Bistha Harbona 
and the other eunuchs to go get Vashti. Right? And I just love the providence of God in, in this. Right? God has put Harbona at different places throughout this story over five, ten years. And Harbona has seen things that have impacted him. So that he is at this moment, he knows what he needs to know about the gallows, about the, enough about the Jews, enough about Haman. And he needs to be at, at least providentially prepared by God to be ready to say to the king, why don't we kill this guy over there? Right? It seems to me there's something in Harbona that sees the evil in Haman, right? that, that goes against Haman. And, and it's just fascinating to think that he has watched Xerxes over these past five or ten years go through all these different situations. Um, and he's now at a place where he is the one to kind of give Xerxes the, the last little nudge to, to complete the destruction of Haman. Um, just a, a beautiful picture, again, of the providence of God. Two chapters ago, Haman was high and mighty and ready to kill all the Jews and continue to be second in command in the large, probably the largest kingdom of the day. And now he's dead. Right? Because the king could not sleep. And because God providentially saves his people. The uh, chapters 8, 9, and 10, 10 is like three or four verses, so it's very short, but it really is just the completion of the salvation of the Jews. Right? We, this, is, this is almost like, like D-Day has passed. Right? The victory is won, but it needs to be finished. Um, really, we know, and, and Esther and Mordecai at this point, um, have seen God's work to save his people. And now it just needs to be completed. And there's some difficulties. Um, the, the king's edict cannot be reversed, and so they need to find some other way to preserve their people. Um, but we see a great reversal, not only in the salvation of the Jews, but also, I think, in Esther. So read chapter 8, in verse 10. No, wrong part. Let's see here. Yes, okay, chapter 8, verse 6. This is, this is Esther pleading with the king to find a way to preserve her people. And she says, how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? And how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Mm. Right, she is now... This is something she never would have said in, in chapters 2 and 3. Right? She has now fully associated with the Jewish people. Right? God has grown her and strengthened her faith and drawn her unto himself right, so that she is connecting herself clearly with the people of God. There's been a great reversal in Esther. Right? God is not just saving the Jews. He is calling and changing Esther. It's a beautiful thing. And then the, the Yiddish goes out that the Jews can defend themselves, that they can even they can attack those that want to kill them. And that's really what this is. This is not the Jews going out and just finding people to indiscriminately kill, but rather they put to death the people that hate them. Right? So it seems as though what happened was the people of the, the nations came out to try to destroy the Jews, right? and God strengthened the Jews and preserved his people by allowing them to overcome their enemies. Um, just like 1 Samuel 15, 33, right? Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord. It seems like to be like the, the completion of what God called the Israelites to do, right? To destroy their enemies. So, chapter 9, verse 1, at the very end there, it says, On the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. 
the Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. Um, the ten sons of Haman are killed. There's 75,000 people amongst in the, in the kingdom that are killed by the Jews. And then there's a celebration with gifts and with food. And, and they celebrate it on different days because in the city they're allowed to come out and fight the second day. But ultimately what we see is God preserving his people in a beautiful, glorious way. Right? This is God working, as he has always promised, to save his people. Um, and they call these days... We go to chapter 9, verse 23. They call these days Purim. Just kind of a, a nod to the, the province of God in a humorous way. Sorry, it's the end of verse 24. They call these days Purim because of the lot that was cast by Haman to destroy the Jews. Right, that, that lot was called Pur. And so they call these days Purim as a, as a reminder of the, of the, the quote-unquote chance happenings that caused the Jews to be saved. Um, and just another nod in the book of Esther to the providence of God. Do they keep that feast to this day? Do you know? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm not sure. I think so. I think I've heard about that. Do you know? I think maybe with like the Hasidic, mm-hmm. possibly. Okay. I think I've heard, I listened to Ben Shapiro, he's an Orthodox Jew. I think I've heard it mentioned Purim. Yeah, one thing that wasn't brought out was, in one sense, there's a there's a challenge to every single Christian, every single believer, and that is, if you're unwilling to do the will of God, I'll find something. <laughs> mm. Yeah, yeah. Because He will fulfill His purposes. Isaiah said, "What I plan yep. is what I will do." Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. Or the story, amen, and, and the other thing God can do is make you willing, <laughs> which is a beautiful thing, because then you're in a, a far better place as a believer. Um, I, one little little quick side note as we finish, um, Esther ends kind of strangely, it just says that King Xerxes imposed a tax on the land, um, and talks about Mordecai being second in command, and he was a good second in command. But um, it's just a beautiful ending, I think, because it's a reminder that even though Xerxes is sec- or Mordecai is second in command, and he's good, he's still not the one in control. Right? Xerxes is still the, influ- the easily influenced king who does what he wants, who is still in control. He's the one who imposes the tax on the land. And it's just a great reminder, as every Old Testament story is, that the people in the Old Testament are a letdown. Right? They are not the ones that fully save the Jews. Right? Esther was used by God to save the Jews, but the Jews still needed salvation. Right? There was still somebody else who was king. They hadn't been fully redeemed. Right? The Old Testament is always a letdown because it's just a point, an arrow pointing forward to Christ. Right? So we should not come to this and think Esther and Mordecai are the answer. We don't. But it's just a reminder that Christ is the answer and he's still coming because the Jews still need salvation. So that is Esther. God fulfilling his covenant promise through providence. God always working in the imperfect to fulfill his plan. It's a reminder to live faithfully in a sinful culture. And it's a reminder that the gospel is of first importance, that we need Christ. We, we, as it were, need an Esther to go before the king and plead for us. And that was Christ. It's also a reminder to remember what God has done. 
right, to celebrate what he has done. We have that in the Lord's Supper. Right, they, they, memorize, they remember through the days of Purim what God had done to save them, and we have the Lord's Supper to remember what God has done to save us. So, Randy, you want to close us in prayer? And we'll...